0: Yeah, I've raised probably like over five, maybe six million dollars from social media, actually, over the past maybe year and a half, maybe two years. And I think a lot of that has to do with.
1: Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind the scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host. Cody and Justin.
2: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Soli Cayetano, a real estate investor who has blown up in the past couple of years talking to us about how to find and get private money for your deals. But before we get into that, let me check in my co-host,
1: Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Finally making it back home, or at least making it back to Texas. So coming off, it was a week of Vegas, then up to see you in Boston, then a week in New York. And then we got back to Texas, and we actually spent most of the weekend, about almost two hours away from Austin, up closer to where College Station is, where Texas A and M is, spending time with some of Leslie's family. But all in all, it's just been a gauntlet of eating terrible food for myself, very tasty food, but it's time to get back on the nutrition train. And uh, we're back in Austin for a couple of weeks before the end of the month, from getting to go up to Yellowstone and that part of the country with my parents, but. Got like three weeks at home, so I'm going to try to get things back on track on the nutrition front. How about you? Get back
2: on that rip dip, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I've been house in the rip dip that you so kindly gifted us for our wedding present. Only got, I think, one tub left, so definitely going to have to re-up and, again, become one of your first recurring out-of-state customers, and we'll figure out how to do that. But we've been having like a crazy heat wave, probably not compared to Austin, but for the Northeast in the beginning of September, it has been high 80s. I think we're going to get a 90-degree day this week, so been really maximizing the lake i think we've been out in the boat like every day from thursday to recording this on tuesday it has just been phenomenal i think we have a couple more days of this before it starts getting cold again but just trying to eke out the last couple of weeks of summer because we'll be moving out probably in a week and a half from the time we're recording this and then we go to europe and then when we come back it's going to be nice and cold so that's basically what i've been doing chilling at the lake going on the boat doing a lot of wakeboarding doing a lot of swimming and yeah not looking forward to the cold weather and moving out of here
1: I wish we could get one of those cold fronts, the 80s and 90s that yeah, you're the talking about. Yeah, the cold fronts. Yeah,
2: You guys can barely leave the house. <laughs> I remember when we were in Austin in July, I could barely move without like pouring sweat. <laughs> Went through three outfits today. Okay, enough about weather and sweating and boats in Austin. Let's talk about our guest for today, Soli. So Soli has this brand, Lattes and Leases, that she started before she even had any properties. She ends up going really fast and documenting the whole journey, a whole bunch of people start following her and seeing what she's doing. And she's picking up all these properties. But along the way, like she's building this huge community that's kind of behind the scenes, like watching her do this live. So she has this huge trusted community that she can now pool funds from. She has all these private lenders that come directly from like Instagram, which is super cool. She talks about how that strategy panned out for her. She talks about how you can do that even if you don't have a big Instagram following just from friends and family and just telling people like, hey, I'm a real estate investor. I invest in these markets. These are the types of deals I'm getting into. And just kind of shouting that out to the world and basically attracting the money that way, just letting people know what you're doing. And her story is truly amazing. The fact that she has scaled up to this level in such a short amount of time. I think she's a couple of years younger than me. I think she's 25 at the time of this recording. So a lot of good takeaways in this one. I was taking notes and private money just seems that much more attainable.
1: The cool thing about the story to me, Cody, is it's given you a good insight into two different sides of a way of making some income, right? Like you've got the side looking for the passive investors who are trying to give you some money. And but then you've got the other side where it really helps show you again, another way in which you can get into real estate without having to find that deal, because that's always a lot of times people's biggest issue. if it's it's either the money or it's finding the deal, And this tackles both of those from one side or the other. The other cool thing I loved about this story was, as you mentioned, she has all these people kind of following along, watching what she's doing. And it sounds like that's kind of how it started. Like she's talking about what she wants to do, she's putting it out there. And all of a sudden, people are kind of invested in her story and say, Well, hey, here's a little money. Let's see what you do. And she knocks it out of the park. And now all of a sudden, they come back. And now she has built this body of work that people can look at and know that this is a trusted process, a trusted person. And now it seems like, you know, there's, plenty of money flowing in and she's got plenty of opportunities. And if you're interested in learning more about Soli, learning how to maybe connect with her to, to even do a deal, you can find all that information and share this episode over at the slash Soli. That's thefyshow.com slash S-O-L-I. Take it away, Soli.
0: My dad was an immigrant from the Philippines and my mom was a professional violinist. And so a lot of the things we talked about were just, you know, spending money we didn't have or how are we going to pay the mortgage or all those sorts of conversations, which really kind of stressed me out as a young kid. And I thought to myself, you know, I really don't want to have these same conversations when I grow up. And that's kind of was the start, the foundation of me trying to create a different kind of life for myself.
1: Yeah. A lot of times growing up in that kind of environment, you end up with some like scarcity mindset due to some of those financial stressors. So how did that creep into your life? How did it shape the way you felt like the direction your life was going to go coming out of high school, going into college where you really set on some kind of goal that would make sure you didn't end up in the same place again?
0: I worked a lot. So in high school, I worked on the weekends and summers on all vacations in a coffee shop. And then I just, you know, saved everything. I don't think I knew very much about investing at first. It was just like, hey, how can I hoard money so that I always had some inside my account? And then when I got to college, I was a finance major because obviously I needed to know everything about money. And then I also got like a pretty full time job when I was a sophomore in college. And I would basically work full time in commercial real estate brokerage, leasing office space. And go to college full time. So it was always, you know, trying to hustle, but it wasn't until I guess we're kind of skipping ahead, but I got to graduating college where I really pivoted into more investing and not just saving.
2: And was there a light bulb moment? Was there a podcast, a book, a mentor? Like what made you go from just being interested in finance, working in commercial real estate, to then being like, okay, I could be an investor. Like I could probably quote unquote retire off of cash flow or off of a nest egg. Like was there a spark? Was there something that made you know that that was possible?
0: It was more of like a life situation, I guess. So the pandemic hit in 2020 and I was a senior in college and I was going into, I loved my job as a commercial real estate broker, but it was like 100% commission and we were leasing office space in a time when no one wanted office space and who knows how long the pandemic was going to last. And so for me, I was like, oh no, like my safety blanket, my security blanket, my job is Probably not going to bring me very much money, and I started to think to myself about how I could build some kind of recurring revenue, so that I had some money coming in, even if my job wasn't going very well.
1: And just to help set the stage for those listing, like where are you located in the world when this is going on? Like, is the job with the commercial real estate in the same place you're living?
0: Born and raised in the Bay Area, so I lived in a small town south of San Francisco, and then also went to college in the Bay Area. So just a A very all around wealthy area, but the homes were, you know, one, 1.5, $2 million and kind of out of reach for a lot of the average people living there.
2: I was about to say the perfect place to invest in real estate, right? The Bay Area for a (laughs) 22 year old looking to get their first (laughs) rental property. So with that being a huge barrier for most people, like most of the people I talk to, it's, I can't find any deals in my area. What happens next?
0: I kind of thought to myself, you know, I had about $50,000 when I graduated college, which is actually like quite a That's bit a of ton. money. But again, I was sort of like the hoarder. Like I'm going to not spend anything super frugal, like bought a paid off car, lived in a shoebox type of thing. And I thought like, you know, if I were to buy something in the Bay Area, I could probably buy a one bedroom condo and that wouldn't really be an investment. <laughs> I would just probably live in it. And so I started to think about, you know, where out of state. I had some friends who invested out of state and kind of put that seed in my Brain of, like, it's possible. Where in the world, in the country, do I have some sort of competitive advantage? And I'd been to Cincinnati for work a couple months prior, saw that on Zillow it was $100,000 houses, and that was kind of it. I really did not know what I didn't know. I did not look into very many markets. So it was just, you know, where does it make sense for my budget and where do I know people? And that was the market I chose.
1: So you're looking at Cincinnati just because you went there on a work trip, you've got a little money in your pocket, but, you know, no crazy amount, but a good amount for someone just graduating college. What are the next tactical steps you make or goals that you set after you decide all right Cincinnati is my market?
0: So I'd say the first thing that it's a very accessible step for anybody is to go and find an investor, a local investor. So someone who's doing what you want to do who can kind of guide you through Where in the market you can invest, where to stay away from, especially if you're investing out of state. There's a lot of street to street areas. Like, you know, don't cross that freeway. It's kind of sketchy over there. And if you're not there, like you can drive by Google Maps, but you don't really get the sense unless you can talk to somebody. So I found a local investor when I was there for work and he had, you know, eight or nine houses. And he was so nice enough to jump on a Zoom call with me and say, like, these are the areas you should focus on. And here is my real estate agent. So I started building my team with that local investor to then give me referrals to people like agents, property managers, lenders, those types of people.
2: That's definitely a key thing is building out that team. And it's probably one of the things that people struggle with most is you got to have boots on the ground. Like if you're not in Cincinnati, if you're in the Bay Area or 2,500 miles away, like you got to have a local contractor team or a property manager that has all these contacts. You need an agent sending you deals. So what did it look like? I guess like how many deals was the agent sending you? When did you decide like, this is the one that I'm going to purchase? Did you have that same mentor from Cincinnati? Did you have them like kind of over the shoulder walking you through like, this is why I would buy this property. This is why I wouldn't buy this property. Just what got you over that analysis paralysis hurdle that so many get trapped in?
0: I think that what actually got me over it was like me posting on Instagram. So I started, this is kind of a weird answer, but I started posting on Instagram before I even had one rental property and I kind of put it out there into the universe. Like this is what I want to do. And I showed up and was like, I'm analyzing deals today. I'm putting in an offer today. And I felt like I just had a bunch of cheerleaders in my court and that they were expecting me to take action. And so what got me over the hurdle was like seeing my community, even though it was online, again, we were in the pandemic, cheering for me, telling me that all of these hardships are normal and also like helping me along the way to answer some questions. So I actually found that first deal on Zillow. I sent it to my agent, but I saw that there was a big price cut and I was like, this is it, you know? And after I got it under contract, it was the second offer I put in. Really was very fast. And I was like, oh no, like now I have to figure things out. (laughs) I actually had that investor walk through it and be like, you know, this is my first property. Would you buy this property? And he was able to like check it out and be like, yes, it's a good area, good property. It's not going to need very much renovation. So he kind of gave me that, I guess, confidence that I was actually buying a decent investment.
1: And with this first deal, like what was your strategy? Was it going to be something you were just going to flip? Was it going to be a long term rental? And then with the cash that you had, was that enough to do both the down payment, and the renovations you needed to, or did you have to turn somewhere else?
0: Yeah. So first property was $98,000 and I used a conventional loan, put 20% down. So just about $20,000 plus closing costs. And then I did around $15,000 of renovations and I had the money, but at the time, again, like trying to keep all the money in the bank, I used a 0% APR credit card for it. I don't know if I'd recommend that for people because it kind of killed my credit score for a little bit, but it was effective. And I ended up using the BRRRR strategy, which is a very common buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. And so six months later, I refinanced that property and I still own it as a long-term rental.
2: And so as you start building out that portfolio, obviously, now that you kind of have like a team, you have boots on the ground, you have the agent, you have this guy who was very nice and walked through the property for you and told you, yeah, this is a great investment, Soli. Did the next couple of ones also happen in Cincinnati, or did you continue to you know look elsewhere now that you had like this out of state belt?
0: I scaled really quickly. I think I bought around 25 units in one year, all in Cincinnati. It was like some wild growth because I, you know, bought my first property, it was cash flowing around five hundred dollars. And for me, I was like, wow, like this could be something, right? You know, if I can make five hundred bucks per property and buy whatever, twenty or thirty properties, like I could be financially free. And so I just went hard and bought a lot of different properties. I built a portfolio about twenty-five units or so in Cincinnati. And then I ended up investing into a different market into Augusta, Georgia. Once I found another partner who owned a property management and a construction firm there. So I like to like say always when you're looking to pick a market, it's like, where do you have a competitive advantage? Where do you know someone who's going to introduce you to the team members? Even better, can you partner with someone who is the team member, who is that contractor, who is that property manager? And so I realized that, hey, I could do so much more utilizing that partner's strengths and then focusing on what was my strength? And so now, a lot of what I do in our partnership is I raise capital for our projects, and he is more so running the like renovation arm of the business.
1: So, speaking of capital, like to get 20 something units in a year, are you continuing just to do this burst strategy, get your money out, get the next one, like having to wait till one is finished to get the other one? That seems like there'd be like too many units to be able to do that. Like you'd have to be doing something else to get that many that quickly.
0: Right. So, after I used basically all my money on my first property, it was, I had my emergency fund, but I used all the rest of it. And so I was like, how am I going to buy my next property with no money? And so I actually discovered private money through my mom. And she had watched me on Instagram and been like, wow, honey, like you're really taking this seriously would love to support you. And I'm not like the type to ever ask for money. And I didn't even think that she had money to invest. And so her reaching out to me was kind of a good light bulb moment where it's like, wow, I could do this. I could scale my portfolio and it doesn't have to be my money. It's a win-win situation. Every year she like takes a vacation with the interest I pay her, which is fun. Like it's a win-win. Like I get to scale my portfolio and she gets to take her vacations. And I think it's really awesome to be able to do that for friends and family members.
2: And I know you mentioned like looking back it's always hindsight 2020 you're like yeah you know I got 25 units in year one no big deal like just went crazy and acquired all these I listened to a podcast with our friend Sean who we had on this podcast as well Sean Pan back from January 2021 and you had talked about you had five units at the time and you're like yeah I'm hoping to like, get a triplex and I think you were also looking at a single family and you're like I <laughs> hope I can be work optional in 10 years and obviously that happened way faster than you could have possibly imagined so like I guess when did the dominoes really start to fall. Let's go back to when you had like five doors, like what possesses you to go and get 20 more? Like, was it that easy? Was there no stress? Were there no things going wrong We you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to get 20 more units. Let's do this thing.
0: I wish I could <laughs> say that. I feel like I have a little bit of an obsessive personality. So when I go into something, I like go hard on it. So I had a partner on my third property and we really partnered up because I was still so new. Like I'd only invested for, I don't know, five months, six months, and I had five units. And I'm like, I still don't have enough money. I wasn't experienced enough to really learn how to raise money from my social media audience, which is what I do now. And so I found a partner who was a lot more experienced than me, who could kind of show me the ropes and like advise me on how to do things. And together, we scaled really fast. And so a five unit came up, we actually cold called the five unit that was next to the triplex I bought. And it was like, okay, like, we just doubled our units, you know, and then a 10 unit came up and it's like, all right, we just quadrupled our units. And so by going after some of these bigger properties, it's like a little bit easier to amass more units. Definitely wasn't without its struggles. We were buying all value add properties. I have no background in construction and I was handling the renovations. And so I think at the peak, we had like 19 units under renovation from 2,500 miles away. (laughs) It was so insanely stressful. So when I was thinking about quitting my job, I was like, I have crazy low living expenses. I have a paid off 2006 car, which I still drive to this day. People are like, why don't you buy a new car? It's like, why should I buy a new car? I was living in like a really cheap, like thousand dollar room in the Bay Area. And it's like, okay, I could live off of, $2,000, you know, and I have that much money coming in for my rental properties. And I have to finish these 19 units of renovations. And so I'm going to focus all my time there, knowing that they're going to produce me enough income to pay for the rest of my living costs in the future. And I have the skills to keep growing that portfolio.
1: Well, the one thing that kind of, I don't to say, we kind of glossed over a little bit is you just started talking about how you just decided to really start doing the private lending. Like your mom gave you the light bulb moment, but then you started reaching out to other people, I'm assuming, to get more cash flow coming in. How do you feel like you were able to do that, like to gain people's trust, especially someone who uh, was as young as you were, with as little background as you had in this, to be able to convince people to hand over probably tens of thousands of dollars for you to manage?
0: Yeah, I've raised probably like over five, maybe $6 million from social media actually over the past maybe year and a half, maybe two years. And I think a lot of that has to do with building like a really solid personal brand online. So everyone, you just don't know who's watching, right? And I think a lot of people love to see people succeeding. They love to see people scaling and they love to see people taking action. There's a lot of people who's Who say they want to do it and they don't actually do it. And so, if you're like, you know, I was doing the thing, like I was flying out there, I was learning how to renovate, like I was sharing everything, I was trying to provide value for people. And I think in doing that, also sharing the good and the bad, like the bad things that happened too, it built a lot of credibility with people who followed me. Some of my lenders are like, I followed you before you even had a rental property. And it's been incredible to see how far you've gone and like how many hurdles you've gotten over. And I trust that you would take care of my money. And so a lot of trust is built just passively by sharing your story on social media. And I think that the more that you talk about funding deals with private money, the more people realize that it's even an option. A lot of people don't want to invest actively in real estate, but they would love to invest passively. They just don't even know it's an option to do that. and if they wanted to, who would they invest with? And so by more so educating my audience that it was an option, More and more people started coming to me saying, I want to do that too.
2: And something else outside of building an audience that you talk about a lot on social media, and I think this is probably more applicable to the average person, is just like telling people that you invest in real estate. I feel like that's an under leveraged thing, is just like tell your friends, tell your family, like I'm a real estate investor, or just like, hey, you know, I'm looking for properties on Zillow, on the MLS. And like, you might just have. An uncle. You might have like your cousin's friend. You like the randomest people might just come out of the woodwork and be like, oh, well, like I have all, all this money sitting in a savings account. I would love to be your private lender. So I was hoping you could talk to that for a second because I do see you talk about that quite a bit on social media. And you don't need a huge following. You just need to tell your friends and family.
0: Right. I actually teach a private money course and we're going through it right now. And it's so awesome because a lot of them don't have brands or public, you know, social medias, and they don't want one. But just the conversations that they have, it makes me so excited because I'm like, yes, all I did was force you to have uncomfortable conversations and tell people that you invest in real estate. A lot of it is is more so changing your persona, like who you say that you are. And so I had one person who like went to a baby shower recently. And it's like, someone's going to ask you, what do you do? It's just a normal question. You could say, I'm a nurse. But hey, why don't you just say I'm a real estate investor because that's going to spur a whole different set of conversations and eventually lead you to more places where you can educate people on like, I know you might not want to invest actively, but did you know that you can invest passively? And it's a very like unsalesy way to just start educating people. And most people, when they know that it's an option, are like, ah, let's talk more about that option.
1: And like you have said, it's a less known about kind of way of funding things. I think from both ends of the spectrum, both from an investor perspective and both from the person who's like actually going out there and, and buying these properties. It's also something where, you know, I think about the interest rates on a bank account or mortgage rates. I can just quickly Google it, see what the standard rates are. And right. I don't think that's the case in this situation. So what should people kind of expect in one of those exchanges? Like what kind of rates are we talking about term links? And I'm sure there's a variety, but just... What's like a standard thing you would see these days, especially now that interest rates have have climbed
0: so hundred percent it d- depends like on the situation on the deal, on the structure of the partnership. I would say rates usually vary from like eight to twelve percent, very similar to hard money rates, but where you do save a lot of like money and time is in the fees. so hard money lenders are lending other people's money, and so they're having to mark up with points and fees and underwriting this and that. Like I once had a hard money loan where is a small one and I paid like $10,000 in fees. And that really eats into profit of deals. Other thing is more like bureaucracies. They have a set process. You have to fill out all the paperwork and like this and that. And when you're working with individuals, you're direct to the actual lender and everything is negotiable. So interest rates, about 8 to 12%. Term length is depending on what you want to do with it. I would say my standard term lengths are about 9 to 12 months. If I'm doing a light flip, or if I'm doing a Burr project, but I've seen people raise money for five years. And it just depends on what you negotiate with your lender.
2: And I guess part of the Burr process is the refinance. And you would now have tons of units. Like at what point did it become unmanageable for like a regular residential bank? Because obviously no regular bank is gonna be like here, Sully, here's 50 mortgages or whatever. Like at some point you're probably gonna have to refinance <laughs> yeah. going down a different route, like commercial. So what does that look like once you start to scale? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth. One dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase, That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show.
0: Everybody always asks me that. They're like how do you have more than 10 loans? And it's like, the only reason you're limited is with a conventional Mm -hmm. loan. So Fannie Freddie backed loans, you can have 10 of them, but there's so many other loan products. There's like portfolio loans, like small local banks who don't sell their mortgages. They're just kept on their books. You have as many as you want as the banklets you have. Commercial loans, DSCR loans, they don't really have the same limits as conventional loans. And so I have a good mixture. I probably have around five or Conventional loans, and the rest of them you know vary for portfolio loans, commercial loans, DSDR loans.
1: And for people who are hearing those terms and maybe don't exactly know what they mean, I, I think you know you kind of explain, hey, if it's the, the Freddie backed kind of loans, that's your conventional loans. But what were some of the other loans you just mentioned? And if they're going into a bank to ask about those, are there, I guess just some kind of keywords or definitions they should know?
0: Yeah, so DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, it basically means that they're not qualifying you as the buyer as much as the property. So they'll take into consideration the property's income and the property's debt and kind of qualify you based off of that. Interest rates are a lot higher, but they're a lot more flexible because they're not like conventional mortgages. Commercial loans are usually used for like five plus units and they're just a little bit more flexible too. Sometimes they're sold to Fannie Freddie, sometimes not. I don't want to get too in the weeds about this, but I think the point of the story is that once you get up to 10 loans, you will know that there's a lot of different options. So if you're just starting or if you have five loans, then don't stress out about it. By the time you double your portfolio to 10, you will know that there's many different ways to find your deals.
2: I just want to ask that question quickly, because some of those rates you're mentioning might sound scary to people. They're like, are you carrying like, you know, 20 different 10% loans at the same time? Like that's really scary to a new investor. I do want to kind of hop back to the private lending thing, because I think people are still going to have a lot of questions. So I know you started documenting your journey on Instagram and on social media. You're just kind of telling people what you were doing. And as they're like, wow, this girl's pretty smart. She's already acquired this number of properties. She knows what she's doing. People start to give you money. Is there like a sweet spot? Like, are you using the same private money lender for multiple projects? Are you like pooling a bunch of capital from different private money lenders? Like, what are the do's and don'ts? What are the best practices and things you learned over the years?
0: About your question about am I carrying like 20, 10% loans? And I know that can sound really scary because like, oh my gosh, I got to come out of pocket like 20000 dollars per month to pay interest. And so that's the awesome part about private money, is everything is negotiable. And one of the things I like to do is pay lenders at the end of the term. I was doing it monthly and then you have like a big monthly net. It's like ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 per month and it really eats into your cash flow. You're having to raise additional money to pay interest and that's not where you want to be. And so if you can pay people at the end of the term when you flip that property or refinance that property, they're just actually paid out from escrow, from any proceeds or equity that you've pushed up. So I think that that's one of the like dues that I would say is Structure it like that so you don't have cash flow problems. If it's a small loan or if it's your first loan, maybe you pay monthly. I like to have one lender per loan. Again, I'm working in smaller, like hundred dollars to $200,000 loan amounts. And so if I can have one person, it's less administration. And I can also give a mortgage to that lender, a first mortgage. And so if I were to default, that mortgage is actually tied to the property itself. And so they would get the property and they could then sell it or do whatever with it to recoup their capital. I think that's a really big drawing point for a lot of people because if you were investing in the stock market and like it just goes to zero, then it goes to zero. Like you've got (laughs) nothing there. You just lose all your money. But if like, you know, worst case scenario in real estate, if you have an actual asset backing that investment. Odds are, unless it burns to the ground, it's not, I mean, then there's insurance, but it's not going to zero, right? You can always sell it in for something and recoup at least partially your capital. I think that makes a lot of people feel more secure.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Psychology definitely plays a lot into this. And that's kind of leads me to one question, which is bouncing backwards a little bit. But when you decided to quit your job and go into this, just for people who are maybe thinking about doing something like that, or at least it's on the horizon. Do you have any advice for them or just like sharing your experience of what that was like to, even though you knew, okay, I can live off $2,000 a month. I have to imagine that was a scary moment to walk away from a steady corporate paycheck to go in and doing your own thing.
0: I wish I had a steady corporate paycheck, but again, I was a commercial real estate broker with all commission. And so I never think I got, you know, people talk about golden handcuffs. Like I have got used to this cushy paycheck and I have a big mortgage and that's like, how am I going to make my money? I think I got lucky in that I was really young and I didn't have a big lifestyle and I also never got a paycheck. And so I wish I did. It would have been nice. So I was kind of used to the uncertainty of that. But for the average person, I would say like track your expenses so that you know exactly how much is actually going out every month and then figure out if there are some things that you can give up for a little bit lifestyle wise. Like can you cut out eating out? Can you downgrade your car and just buy it in cash? Like there's a lot of decisions that people make because they're not willing to like have delayed gratification. I think that's a really big part about being successful in real estate. You got to bootstrap it unless you have a bunch of money. Most people have to bootstrap it for the first few years, but doing that for a few years sets you up for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah. I love that you said that. I am of the exact same mindset. Like I grinded from like 22 to 25. I was living on like 15 to $2,000 a month. And I think that's like a really key piece if we have younger listeners is that you don't have to be like super frugal forever. You don't have to like give it up forever. Like if you can just do this for a couple of years and live like I did or like Sully did or like Justin did, then you never have to work again. Work becomes optional. So I just love that because when you're you know 22 years old and living at $2,000 a month, like you can take all the risks in the world. If you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage, like mm-hmm. worst case scenario, like you can even move out of your apartment, probably move in with a friend at that age. Like you just got out of college. It's just like, take the risks when you can because they can pay off tremendously. I mean, what age was it you hit financial independence solely? Like 24, 23? I think I was like 23. 23.
0: <laughs> also, it's like, I, I don't know what it's called in the financial independence world. If it's like lean like fire. It's like not the life. It's not the lifestyle that I want to live for the rest of the life. But it's also like, okay, I'm work optional because I know that I could live this small lifestyle for now. I would say the second thing I would recommend though if people are trying to quit their jobs is like prove that you can do it to yourself while you're working your job. A lot of people are super anxious to quit. And they're like, how do I quit in the next two months? Or like, can I quit today and try to build this thing? I was working like what, like 16, 18 hour days, like doing my full-time brokerage, making money, like building my real estate portfolio, like doing whatever I needed possible to make it happen while I was at my job so that I knew that even if my real estate didn't make much money or a project went off budget, that at least I had some money coming in from a different source. That's kind of a, know, the hustle mindset. I was like coaching real estate, buying real estate, commercial brokerage, a lot of different income streams.
1: And we've talked a lot about acquiring these properties, but now you've got all these properties. There's a lot of different things you can do with them. You can long-term rent them. You can rent rooms out. You can Airbnb them. You can mid-term rent them. Like, What's kind of your strategy with these places
0: after you acquire them? I guess a mix. At first I started all long-term rentals and I think long-term rentals are a little bit more accessible for a lot of people because you can just get a property manager and you kind of never hear about them unless something bad happens, right? As I grew my portfolio, I got more into midterm rentals. I think midterm rentals have been recently very popularized. They're traveling nurse rentals, you know, maybe like 90 days or six months typical stays. And I think it's a really nice, way to increase your cash flow because they're furnished, but not have to deal with like short term Airbnb guests. And so I have five midterm rentals. And then I recently, again, started flipping. And so I flipped a, a little bit early on in my investing career. And then recently, because of interest rates, it makes it a little bit harder to burr properties and make a bunch of cash flow. But it's a little bit easier to flip properties and access that equity. It's a little I guess, complicated, but I would say those are my three top strategies would be long-term rentals, my favorite, midterm rentals, probably my second favorite, but love the cash flow. And then third is like a flipping side, but more so it's active income. It's not passive income.
2: Back to the private lending for a second. I just have a couple more questions on this because I think we're going to have a lot of listeners who are like, okay, I'm going to start telling everybody I want to get this private lending thing going. Like, I know my grandma has a bunch of money just sitting in her savings account. She could be making, (laughs) you know, 10% instead of 3% or whatever. So, how do you sell this to people? I know for you, Soli, a lot of these deals are like fully funded, you're getting 100% of the purchase price. And then I don't know if you're covering some or all of the renovation and rehab or if you're getting like a second lender to come in for that. Like, what does the deal structure look like? And like, how do you get someone on board? Be like, hey, you want to take 100% of the risk in this property? This is going to be a great deal for you.
0: Okay, before we jump into that, I would say that, People might listen to us and be like, oh, my gosh, private lending is the holy grail. Like, I'm just going to go out. It's my first deal and raise 100% of the financing. (laughs) And it's more of, I would say, it is other people's money. Like, if you can think about how long it would take someone to save up $100,000, it's a long time. It's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of hours. And so I think you have to be really careful that you are a steward of their money. Their return becomes more important than your return and your profit. And if you have no idea what you're doing, I wouldn't recommend that you do this because you can't take care of people's money. You're going to be learning and making mistakes on their money. And so I didn't really scale up my like private money raising until I had a you know a bunch of deals underneath my belt. And I felt comfortable saying, I know I can take care of your money and I'm confident I can give you a return. That being said, I do fund 100% of my purchase price and 100% of my renovations with private money with the same lender typically. And so it's kind of a weird structure because people are used to people having some skin in the game. But I think if you can explain it, like, hey, we're doing multiple projects at once. These are all value-add properties. They have built-in equity. And this is how we're able to do, you know, five, 10 deals at once. I think people end up understanding that it's just a different type of business strategy. At the end of the day, they are protected, whether it's by that mortgage and there is built-in equity in it, or it's a personal guarantee. And if you're personal guaranteeing, maybe the renovation portion or even part of the purchase price, then you're actually showing like, these are my assets. This is my bank account. This is everything I own. And if I don't perform, one, my whole reputation is going to be ruined and I don't want that. But two, you can sue me for everything I own. And I think that makes people feel a lot more comfortable. If you don't have any assets, then that's probably not that helpful. But at this point in my investing career, like I have enough assets, enough equity and enough Money in my bank account, where people are like, "Okay, I feel comfortable having that personal guarantee as well."
1: And I think that's where you know most people's brain would go as far as criteria-based discussion. Like it's the person loaning the money who's looking for criteria so they can trust you because it's their money. But what about on the other side? Like, are there lenders who reach out who want to invest with you that you realize mm, that's not a good fit for me?
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. There are some people who want coaching in exchange for lending money, and I'm like. I'm not going to pay you to coach you. But I think it's a lot of people phrase it as like, I want to learn how to invest by lending you money. And I think that's a very important distinction. Like this is not a partnership. You are a passive partner who has no say, no decision-making power in this deal. Really your job is to just collect your mailbox money. And so if people are positioning it as like, I want to tag along on all your meetings and like, I want to use this to learn how to invest then I don't feel like it'll be successful in their eyes. They're not doing it for the return. They're doing it for the mentorship. So I think that's one thing that I would pay attention to. Some people would be like, oh, absolutely, I'll teach you how to do it. I think that's a good way maybe to get initial private lenders. The next thing I would say is, I, sometimes you get people who want to get too involved. And again, you have to remind them, it's like, it's passive, it's not a partnership. It's, it's Just collect your money. And so I don't like to work with them either because they're gonna end up calling you every day. If they call you every day when you're just like interviewing them per se, then imagine how much they're going to call you in the nine months that you're going to work together.
2: And it sounds like a really important piece of this is having the right contracts in place. And that's what makes them feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. like having the personal guarantee. They also have like a mortgage. So if you default, like they get ownership of the house. Do you have like a legal team that makes a new contract for everyone? Do you just have like a boilerplate legal contract that you like edit the amounts and the address and all the personal details for that property? Or how do you do that?
0: So it's going to probably depend on what market you invest in. But I would say best practice would be to have an attorney that is local to the market that you're investing in. So my attorney in Augusta is in Augusta. It's not in California because I live here. But I would say... Like they'll have templates of their own. And then it's good to just tell them like the specifics of the deal because they're all slightly different, even though they're basically the same. And then the lawyer is then responsible for drafting up the documents. It's honestly not that expensive because they themselves are using templates. They're just inputting it every time. And then people can feel really confident that like, okay, the lawyer has drafted this. If they have any questions, they can ask the lawyer and he can walk through it. I think it just makes a better experience all around.
1: Just from like an open-ended question perspective, is there anything else about private lending that you think we're not asking that like, hey guys, this is really important for somebody who hasn't heard of this or is thinking about getting into it?
0: I think people might have questions about the paperwork side, like what actually the paperwork is. And so I would say there's a couple different forms that they should be aware of. So promissory notes are basically just the terms of the agreement. It'll just be like, what is the amount? What is the interest rate? What is this? What is that? And then secondly would be the actual collateral, like what is the security behind it? And then you have kind of three options. You have the personal guarantee, meaning you are personally liable. And then the other two options are a mortgage, if you're in a mortgage state, or a deed of trust, if you're in a deed of trust state. They're essentially the same thing. They're just slightly different depending on what state you're in. So for example, since Ohio is a mortgage state. So you would give a mortgage document where other states are deed of trust states. So I think that's kind of why you have to also find a local attorney and be like, hey, what documents do I need in my specific state for my specific situation? And they can kind of list out, you know, you need a promissory note, you need a mortgage, you need a personal guarantee.
2: So I want to walk through the numbers.
0: The easiest math is 100, you put in 20 and you need it to appraise for 160. And so 75% of 160 is 120.
2: Okay. Thank you for pulling that math equation out. But so I (laughs) guess how often does that not happen? Like how often does it not appraise for 160 or equivalent ratio in other circumstances?
0: So I would say that you have to build in a lot of contingencies. That's another good discussion because again, like you have to protect your private... Lenders money, right? So, how do you do that? You build in a lot of different buffers. So, you build in a timeline buffer. So, if we think that the project's going to take six months, then we'll either raise it for nine months or 12 months so that we know that if the project takes longer or if it sits on the market and doesn't sell, that we've already included that buffer and don't have to go back to the lender to ask for another extension. You also include buffers in your renovation numbers. And so if you think it's going to cost $100,000, just for easy math, for the renovation, then you know maybe you include like a 20% buffer. It's like, We're just going to say it's one hundred twenty thousand because we know that things come up. Things always come up in renovations, and you just don't want to like have to go back and be like, "Hey, can I have some more money?" So there's things like that. Same with when you're projecting ARV numbers. And for people who don't know what that is, it's basically what the value of the property is once you've renovated it. So we'll basically look at all the comps and we'll stay on the lower end of the comps. So if it, you know, we have a hundred, we have a hundred five, we have a hundred ten. We'll stay closer to 100 so that, you know, if the market goes up, great. Like if we get a higher comp, awesome, but we're not going to promise that high end of the comp. We want to make sure that our projections are very conservative. So I would say it doesn't happen super often at this point because we have like pretty good team in place to estimate what things are going to appraise for, or sell for. But I would say it has happened before and that's kind of why you also need reserves Like, what is your contingency plan for if this doesn't appraise? Do you have your own personal savings? Are you going to renegotiate with your lender and be like, hey, like, would you mind leaving $10,000 in this deal for a year or two? There's different ways you can do it. I personally like to have my own reserves so that I know that if it doesn't appraise and there's $10,000 left in the deal that I can put my money into it.
1: And I can imagine if people are investing with you and they're successful, They're going to do another deal. And so for people who are thinking about something like this, is that something they could expect is if they perform that in time, they actually won't even have to go out and really be sourcing new lenders because they can just go back to the well, that person gets paid out, they're ready to invest again.
0: Yeah. I always say the measure of a successful lender is if they want to do it again. And so people are always looking for safe places to park their money. And a lot of people have more money than they probably let on they just want to test you. You know, it's like, I'm not going to give 500 grand to a new person, but I might give them a hundred and see if they give it back to me. And do they take care of it? Do they communicate? And so if you are successful and you give them back their money and they enjoy working with you, then it's like, all right, let's do 200. And then like you do it again. It's like, well, let's do 300. And that's happened a bunch of times as well. where you are like, ah, I never knew that they had any other money, but like it's a relationship developed over time. And I'd rather have more quality lenders than quantity lenders. If I can work with 10 people who have a million dollars, that makes it way easier on me than trying to work with 100 people who have $10,000. Makes a lot of
2: sense. And since a lot of these in mean, the burst strategy is buying distressed properties and adding value to them. So if you're buying a property for 100,000 and needs 100,000 of work, are you getting the 200 upfront? It sounds like you even have a contingency built in like 220. Are you getting that upfront or are you getting it in stages? Obviously, the purchase you need upfront, but you're getting the renovation budget in stages from that lender?
0: So, I would say we usually don't do renovations <laughs> that big. It's just for easy math. I would say usually a renovation, at least in Augusta, is like ten dollars to $30,000. But in those cases, we get it 100% upfront. Okay. It's easier for us because we don't have to go through like a draw system from a hard money lender it is deposited into escrow. And if you really wanted to set it up, like if a lender felt really uncomfortable and they wanted to like do a draw system, like, Hey, show me that 25% is done and I'll give you another $50,000. Then you can totally set it up like that. It's just totally dependent on your relationship with them, what you negotiate. You just want to make sure that they won't like spend the money on something else. And then not have it to give to you. (laughs) That would be kind of a worst case scenario. But you can probably determine like some type of escrow account with your title and escrow company where you submit a letter. The lender says, "Okay, we're good for another draw, that kind of thing.
1: So there we were talking a lot about, you know, that kind of that trust and some of those things you could set up as far as escrow. But just from a high level, what are some of those discussions like after that lender gives you the money? Like, what are some of the updates? Like, could you update them? Every week, every month, like, are you sending them pictures of the renovations? Just like, what is the communication flow like in your personal setup?
0: Updates are monthly. And so every month we'll reach out. It's an email kind of say like, this is your accrued interest because usually we're not paying monthly. So we want to make sure they're knowing that like, you are actually accruing the interest. You're just not seeing it yet. And these are some of the renovations that have happened in the last month or so. And so we'll do that you know, every month until about 30 to 45 days out of refinancing or selling. And then we'll check in and ask them if they want to reinvest their funds, which is good because then we can find another deal that they can invest into and you don't have to go out and find another lender.
2: So I think that's it for private lending. I'm sure we're going to have people with a ton of questions. And Sol, you had mentioned before we hit record here that you have a resource for people to grab that can kind of walk them through the process, what to ask and how to structure deals and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, so I actually have a presentation. A lot of people ask me, like, what do I say when I'm trying to pitch, even like friends and family members. And so I took my actual pitch that I gave my mom. It's a Canva presentation, and I turned it into a template for people. And people have like successfully raised, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars with it, which is super awesome to see. It's on my website. It's called LatesandLisas dot com, and it's a free download. So if you want to make your own presentation to present to your friends and family members you can just grab that customize it and make it your own
2: sweet i think that will help a lot of listeners there is one thing outside of private lending i really wanted to ask about this cuz i saw it on instagram and i thought it was just like a really important real estate lesson that not a lot of people think about people are like cash flow cash flow cash flow and you talk about this property that you bought for $70,000 in augusta georgia i think the cash flow number was like $170 a month or something and you were happy with it you were happy with how that deal came out could you just like Explain why that is because most people who are like that sounds absolutely terrible, I would never do that deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody's buy box is different, right? And I think that for me personally, I'm pretty young 25 and so I have a really long view on real estate. So I have 10 years plus for it to become a better deal. And so, with this interest rate environment, we're at seven percent interest rates, eight percent interest rates, and it's getting harder and harder to find deals that cash flow, but you know. Today it's 170, but next year when rental rates increase, you know it could be 270, and then 370, and in 10 years that could be 500, 600, 700 dollars. And so I think when you can put it into perspective and understand that there's other benefits to investing than just cash flow, there's appreciation. You know, you can force equity through renovations. I think that same property we built like thirty thousand dollars of equity. By doing a renovation which is incredibly hard to do in a lot of different asset classes there's tax benefits you're getting depreciation you're getting write-offs there's so many other things principal pay down is a big one so in 30 years not including your cash flow your tenants are actually paying off your mortgage and you'll have a completely paid off house that your tenants have paid for so taking more like one a holistic view of real estate and then two a longer time frame a longer time horizon where it's not just like, what does it make for me today? But what does it make for me five years from now, 10 years from now? It can really help shift your perspective a little bit.
1: Well, Sully, thank you so much for giving us the time. And especially with all the private lending, letting us pick your brain and get the very tactical step. So for those who hadn't heard of it before, now they're going to be much more informed and they're going to have a really good starting point. But for those who want to keep up with more of what you got going on, learn even more from you, where's the best place for them to do that?
0: I'm on Instagram so they can come hang out. It's lattes, and, Lisa's, lattes dot and dot Lisa's. I was telling someone earlier today, I named it when I thought no one would follow me. And now people actually think that lattes is my first name. Like they will go, hi, lattes. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I can't ever change it. It's now just my brand.
2: Is that from the early coffee shop days, side hustling, getting that 50K? Is that where the lattes part comes from?
0: It actually is. I worked there for five years. I like to say it's like my best job because literally your job is to make people happy. Like they come in grumpy, tired, hungover, and then you like know their coffee order and you know their name and it just brings them like so much joy. So I would say it's my two favorite things, real estate and coffee.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you for making our audience happy and bringing some smiles and some knowledge to their faces. And just want to thank you for your time today. We've been chasing you down for a while. I know you were like, yeah, I'll book it. And then you didn't. And then I chased (laughs) you down. And then you're like, yeah, I'll book it. And then you didn't. And here we are. We finally got you on. You brought a ton of knowledge. I was traveling. (laughs) 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 All right. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Lattes and
0: layovers. (laughs) (laughs) New name.
2: And I know you have an event coming up. So you just want to tell people about that real quick?
0: Yes. So for everyone interested in out-of-state investing, we're hosting a completely free two-day summit. Out-of-State Investor Summit. And it's going to be on September 20th and 21st. So if you go to my Instagram page, you will see it all over the place. And you can follow our Instagram at Out-of-State Investor Academy, and you can sign up for free.
1: Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at TheFiShow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time.